This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book of number eight of the series on the book of Job. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those who are listening to this recording, if they care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together John, the ninth chapter. In our study last Thursday, we were dealing particularly with that basic question that underlies all questions that is raised by Job. If a man die, shall he live again? And you know that there are all sorts of answers to that question, negative and positive, that characterise the religions and philosophies of the world. We must remember, when we are considering Job and his problems, that he had no Bible as we have. He couldn't ask a question like that and then turn to some scripture so that the Spirit of God could lead his mind. But God had more ways than one of revealing his truth to men. He spoke to Abraham, but Abraham had no Bible. He spoke to Noah, and Noah had no Bible, not in any sense that we understand. But we do know from the book of the Epistle to the Romans that the very external creation itself was designed by God to reveal something of his nature and purposes. And you remember last time we found Job beginning to sort of uh, very exercised about this thought. He uses the word three times. He speaks about the fact that he was the work of God's hands. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. And then he says this. In the first case, he's asking, will God despise the work of his hands? Secondly, he says, will God destroy the work of his hands? And then you remember he comes right out with it in chapter 14, he would have a desire unto the work of his hands. And it's rather interesting and helpful that in our English version, it just has those three words, despise, destroy, desire, that carries you on. Now he was thinking along the lines of purpose, and that's a good thought. I'm evidently here, the result of some creative work. But look at me. I'm wishing for death of a despicable object. Nobody seems to explain anything. These friends of mine are aggravating me because they're charging me with secret sin and it's perfectly wrong. Why am I treated like this? And then, you remember, he turns aside from speaking about himself to suddenly remark about a tree. He says in Job 14, man is cut down. And presently he says, a tree is cut down. But he says, oh wait, a tree is cut down. And then it sprouts again. And you remember, later on in the same chapter, he said, I will wait till my change come. And that's the very same word as the word sprout. So although you dare not say Job is saying, I will sprout again, that's what he said in his own language. If God can make a tree sprout again, will he not give me that newness of life? And that's how the light dawned. But it was all if and shall and will and hope and based upon some sort of analogy. Now as we go through the nine discourses of each one of these 
friends and the nine replies of Job and put them together, we discover that right in the middle of those nine replies of Job come these words. I know that my Redeemer liveth. He didn't say, I guess, I hope, I think, I know. And we were reading just now about a man. And he had some people who practically said almost the same tantalising things that the friends of Job. For the disciples said, Lord, which man, which did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? They assumed that they must have been sinned somewhere. They were assuming that Job was a secret sinner somewhere. They didn't know there was another answer. And the Lord said, neither did this man sin nor his parents in this particular but that the works of God might be manifest in him. And inasmuch as this is a very difficult subject for anyone to uh, receive at first, it's repeated all over again in another chapter in John's Gospel. Lazarus is dead. No, he says, it's not in order that he might die. That's not the point. It's that the glory of God might be manifested. So there's that aspect coming out. And Job at last, in some way, as I think we'll begin to trace, begins to see that he could say at least, I know. But there's one other thing. He said, I believe that I shall wake again in resurrection. But he never says a single word about the redemption from sin. He simply knows that. But now he's got to the idea in the next, in the next passage, that's chapter 19, that he has a redeemer. But that Redeemer that didn't mean exactly the same to Job as it means to you and me now that we've read the Gospels and know the Epistle to the Romans. It, we have to wait for Elijah to come along. And he adds one more word. And here are the three hours of the book of Job in their order. Resurrection. Redeemer. Ransom. Now Job had offered sacrifices because of his uh, fear that his children had sinned. But it never entered into his hope or his teaching that there was a, a another sacrifice that God had in view of which these were types until Elihu steps in and points that out to him. But there's a tremendous lot of teaching waiting for us within the limits of this passage and to that we must now turn. But before we do, I want to take another passage with it. That is to say, not only did Job say, I know, with regard to the Redeemer. He also said, I know with regard to all the baffling things that have perplexed me. He says, I no longer guess. I'm in despair. Always said, certainly, I do not know the way that I take, but he does. So I'm going to give you that as well, and then we'll take those two as our text for this evening. Chapter 23, verse 8, 9 and 10. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, but I cannot see him. Now, up to now, that would have been a complaint by the book of Job. He would have had murmuring and complaining and explaining how baffled he was by all these things. But not now. He says, I still admit, I do not know. But I'm going to add this, he says, but he knoweth the way that I take. 
and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as God. So now we've got these two. And I have a feeling, friend, that if anyone even today, in this up-to-date period, if there's anyone who can say out of a full heart and a full mind, as taught by the Scriptures, I know, and he knows, he's a man to be envied, for he's on the way to glory beyond dream. Well now let's come to this um, chapter 19. Notice what he says. How he leads up to it. Uh, notice verse 14. My kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. Sometimes we ourselves help ourselves by accidentally using a word. I don't know whether you've ever found that in conversation, that you yourself have said a word that you hadn't planned to say, and it gives you a key, and on you go with the next step. And here Job is remarking something which may not strike so deeply because we are living in what is called a different type of civilization altogether from the time of Job. You see, as you come up from the early days, you get less and less the individual and the family and more and more the state. Until today, uh, we uh, are looked after and provided for by the state in ways that would have seemed impossible, say, a couple of hundred years ago. Some people, of course, naturally, I suppose I may be included among them, complain at the rates when they come in. Oh, they're going up again, you see, like that. But I do remind myself that my ancestors, who didn't pay rates, had to get up in the middle of the night and walk round their estate with a blunderbuss. But I don't. Part of my rates pays the policeman. And then, if they did have an accident at their house and it started fire, it's no good ringing 999. They couldn't ring and 99 wouldn't mean anything. They'd have to put it out themselves. But my rates pay for a fireman. And then if I'm sick, I'm carted off in an ambulance. I pay not a penny for it. And they see to me and they send me back as I'm here this evening, grateful to think that that incubus that I've carried about with me for about seven years has been removed by the mercy of God and the skill of the surgeon. See? Now you put yourself back in the days of Job. And the consequence is that inasmuch as they had to provide for themselves all these things, it became a matter of the family entering into obligation and uh, hospitality and all that that we haven't got the remotest idea of performing. And among other things, there was the office of the person who was called the King's Man Redeemer. Now you will find that the King's Man Redeemer figures very large in the Old Testament conception of the redemptive work of Christ. Foreshadowing a wonderful fact that not only do we have to say, Behold, God is my salvation, but we have to say that the one who is my saviour and my redeemer is one who has walked this earth, who has been, uh, has uh, taken upon himself the likeness of man and knows what it is to be treated as a man. 
tempted at all points as we are, sin accepted. All these things are implied and included in this word kinsman redeemer. Before we come to that though, just look at the context a bit closer. After expostulating with these folks because they seem to have failed, the kinsfolk have failed, his kinsfolk ought to have rallied round him, you see. You realise, you may have read the story in the book of Genesis that Lot was taken captive when the battle of the kings took place and without the slightest dispute or murmur Abraham immediately arms his servants and off they go they are following armies and by the grace of God rescue Lot but Abraham had an obligation he couldn't shirk it he was a kinsman and he had to step in even though he, it meant that he lost his own life there was no help for it and you remember in one of the Psalms the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will make mention of the name of the Lord our God. Now, you think, yes, that's very nice, but do you see what it means? I will remember or call upon or mention my kinsman redeemer. That was in the mind of the writer. He said, just as you, when you're in trouble, you call upon the name of the man who is your kinsman redeemer and he must respond or he'd be disgraced forever in the tribe. So, some trust in chariots, some in horses, and some, because they know, they call on the name of the living God. That makes me remember, I must tell this story against myself, although I've said it before. I remember once being asked by Mr. Brinninger to write a small article because there was a space that had not been provided for, and I wrote a little article on the psalm that says, some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Well, when the printer got it, he looked at it, I suppose he turned it upside down, he asked his men what they thought about it, and they had a brainwave. So it came back printed, some trust in charity, and some in works, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It was a good shot, wasn't it? Because it really meant that in our, but of course we couldn't let it remain. That chariot looked like charity, and ORS looked like works, you see. Or we leave that out. So here he is. He's got this in mind that these king's folk have failed. Isn't it blessed that sometimes a failure and a very sore failure is the very best thing that could happen to us? When all others fail, while writers put that in a modern hymn, hasn't he? He fails not. Change and decay it all around our see. All thou that changest not. You see the contrast. So at last Job apparently realises this and it's so intense with him uh, that he has the same urge that some of us have felt even in our present day. He wanted to write a book. I don't know whether you've ever wanted to write a book. I don't think I ever set out and wanted to write a book. I didn't think I could. But before I knew where I was, the book was writing itself. That's the way to write a book, friends. Don't you bother to write it. Let it be so insistent that you can't help yourself. That's how the first book was written, Dispensational Truth. And then all the rest came as a consequence, for good or ill. So this man says, All that my words were now written. Now do remember this, friends. Very clever people have maintained 
that Moses couldn't have given the law because they didn't know how to write in Moses' day. Well, Job is a long way earlier than Moses, and yet he says, all that my words were now written. But not only so, all that they were printed in a book. Of course, nobody's going to say that he was going to use a linotype or anything like that. But he ever thought that there was a uh, uh, there was a means whereby it could be preserved and passed on, like Moses gave the book of the law. He wanted it printed. Well, it's one thing to want something printed, but it's another thing to be sure that it's worth printing. But he goes further. But they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. What's that mean? Well, that means to cut the letters and fill them with lead. And that's as everlasting as you'll get anything in this life. Granite cut with a with a chisel, filled with lead, remains in spite of storm and flood. What is it he's got to say? That he feels is so tremendously important that he would want it written and printed and engraved. Why, well, I haven't even got so far as to hope that Mr. Cannon's going to start turning into a mason and putting it all into slabs of stone. No. Yet this man wanted it. Why? And it was worth it, wasn't it? Oh, in that day for someone at last to come out and say, Friend, you know the system we have, that we call upon our next of kin to come to our rescue. Well, that's a picture of what God intends us to do. He's doing it in the greater and fuller sense. I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, before we go further, I want to discuss another point. It says in verse 26, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. In the margin it says, after I shall awake, though this body be destroyed. Now what are we going to do about this? How is it possible that you could have an English version that says, though worms destroy my body, or after my skin worms destroy this body, and then in the margin, I, after I shall awake. How is it possible? Well, you do know that there are words in the English language which can have two meanings. I always remember one hymn that was written by someone, I'm not going to say whom. He was very, very serious, so serious he hadn't got a humorous bump. And so I remember there, doing the best I could to keep a straight face, when we all solemnly sung about those Christians who were insects. Would you believe it? In the different denominations, you see. The Christians in the different denominations. But they said, the Christians who were insects. Well, now you could join those together and say, no, the true reading of that is, they were insects. And who's going to decide? Because that's exactly what's here. You see the letter on the... Uh, the top there, the two letters, you are, well that can mean, after my skin, in the way it's put, or it can be a part of the word to awake. It depends on whether you cut it off at the beginning or cut it off at the end. What do you say, how are you going to decide? Well, I said to myself this, I believe that the words of God are weighed and numbered. I don't mean to say in a slavish sense. But he has distributed them and watched over them. Now I'm going to look at every occurrence of this particular word in the book of Job. 
and I'm going to put the references down. So would you do that together with me just now, turn to these? We'll look at the first, chapter 3, verse 8. And all the time, it's this particular uh, part of speech represented by those two letters, U-R. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning. And in the margin, the word morning is the word Leviathan. Leviathan. We'll see that again in a moment. It was a figure of speech uh, raising up the devil or raising up old Harry or raising up something like that in connection with this trouble. But you notice the word I have in view here is to raise up. To raise up. Now will you look at the last reference, chapter 41, 10. Job 41, 10. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Stir him up. Who is this? Verse 1, Leviathan. So the first reference, and the last reference means to raise up or to stir up Leviathan. Oh, I thought that's good. That looks as though I'm going to get a pattern. The first and the last are already giving the bell. So we back, go back to the second one. Chapter 8, verse 6. If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee. Awake. This is in Bildad's challenge. He would awake. Now let's look at the answer to that in chapter 31, 29. 31, 29. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him. So here is Job's answer. And the one puts it to stir up or to wake up or to raise up and the other one says here in our English version to uh, lift up. We've got nothing yet comparable to the word skin. That's the point. It's always raise up, stir up, lift up and something. And if you look now at the central one, chapter 17, 8. Chapter 17, 8. Upright men shall be astonished at this, and the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. Stir up. Now we've only got two left. Only two. Now it would be very strange if the whole pattern goes to pieces now, won't it? The first passage we look at now is chapter 14. You say, oh, well, that's the one on resurrection. Yes, that's, that's so. Chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. So there we have raised again. Raised. In, re in relation to the word awake and sleep. Well now we come to chapter 19. 
And if we put the words after my skin, then the whole pattern's ruined. If we say what it means to awake, the whole pattern's complete. And the structure is a word, is it were the chairman's vote, which decides when you're not sure which way it's going to be. There it is. So, I have no doubt myself that I read verse 26. After I shall awake, though this body be destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I don't know whether anyone's sorry that the skin and the worms have moved out of it, but there it is. I shall awake. I shall awake. It goes right the way through every time to awake, to stand up, to stir up, but never the other word. Well now let's come a bit closer. This word redeemer. Next of kin. The one book that you ought to know, and I trust you do, that gives you a very wonderful light on the kinsman redeemer is the book of Job, uh, book of Ruth. But I dare not start with the book of Ruth tonight because we should fill the tape and more and not complete our survey. But you do know the story, don't you? That an inheritance had been lost by death. And when Boaz married Ruth, he restored the name of the man who'd been dead and his inheritance continued. And all the way through the book of Ruth, Naomi is speaking about Boaz as the kin's man, the next of kin, the next of kin, the next of kin. He's the kin's man redeemer. And then if you want the law on this matter, particularly, you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And there you'll read a law which governed the marriage relationships in certain circumstances. If a man married and died, leaving no children, what's going to happen? You see, the tribe, the inheritance, is all involved. Well, we are told that that widow, she can't go marry anybody else that she fancies, the husband's brother, the next of kin, shall marry that woman. And if they have children, then the child that is born shall be reckoned in the name of the man that is dead, that the inheritance be not lost. And if this husband's brother should refuse, they went through a ceremony, they took off their shoe, they spit in his face, and he was a disgraced man. That was the law. So there we've got another aspect of the kinsman redeemer. Summing up the um, summing up the offices of the kinsman redeemer, I notice there are four ways in which it may be spoken of, and you may have, you have to look all these up for yourselves. In Leviticus 25, the kinsman redeemer recovers a forfeited or alienated inheritance or property. In Genesis 14 we get an example of Abraham exercising the necessity that a kinsman redeemer should go to the rescue of anyone who was taken captive or sold. And if anyone had been murdered and slain then the kinsman redeemer became the avenger of blood. And you want to remember this, that the identical word redeemer is translated avenger. 
And you get those two together when it speaks of Christ. The vengeance, the days of vengeance and the day of my redeemed has come, the two together. And then, the one we've mentioned, the marrying of the widow so that the inheritance and the name of the man be not blotted out by death. What did you think of our Redeemer? You get the epistle to the Hebrews written to those who knew all about the kinsman Redeemer. He said, seeing that the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death as the kinsman avenger, and deliver those who all their lifetime were in bondage to the fear of death. You got it. There's the exercise of the two offices of the kinsman redeemer. And then another thing for us to weigh over and weigh over carefully. Many times we have to warn one another that although that particular word comes there, it's not the same as the word there, although it is in the English. But there's no exception in the English version. Every time you read the word redeemer in the Old Testament, it's the word that means next of kin. Now you try that with Isaiah. He speaks of the redeemer as the creator of heaven and earth. You put the words in, not redeemer. Say, my kinsman created heaven and earth. And people will think you're a blasphemer. They little know that you're speaking a wondrous truth that we can only speak of without explaining. My kinsman is the one that created heaven and earth. The same epistle to the Hebrews that said Christ is my kinsman in chapter 2 said that his hands and his fingers were the ones that made heaven and earth. Again it tells you that the Redeemer of Israel is the Lord of hosts. It's the kinsman Redeemer of Israel. And so Isaiah, who gives us the problem, gives us the answer. Isaiah tells us that the Redeemer, who is the Creator, is my King's man. And he says, unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And his name shall be the Mighty God. He didn't hesitate to say those words. I'm not saying I can explain it, but I must, must say what the word says. And believe what it says. This is my kinsman redeemer. Not a man in the sense that I am. For the scripture says, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. But that doesn't mean to say, I haven't got a kinsman redeemer. For when he saw there was no man, then his own arm came to the rescue and for my, my redemption and my salvation and yours, he laid aside his glory and he stooped down to the cradle of Bethlehem and the cross of Calvary my kinsman redeemer well I'd like to go on more than that I just have to finish this aspect because I want to get over to the other chapter it says and though uh, and um, after I shall awake though this body be destroyed yet in my flesh shall I see God now a good many make a great deal out of the fact that the actual literal words are, yet out of my flesh shall I see God. And they say, there you are, that doesn't mean a literal resurrection at all, it's out of his flesh. But that's assuming that it means without it altogether. 
Whereas the word out of, both in the Old Testament and the New, means the instrument that is used. When we get ekpistios, uh, out of faith. A righteousness out of faith. Does that mean a righteousness which has nothing to do with faith? It's a righteousness which originates in faith. Instead of a righteousness which originates in law. It's the instrument or the cause or the origin. So he says, out of this very flesh that I have, I don't know how. I can't explain why. But it's going to be me and not another. If you'd have said to Job, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come, he'd no more be able to answer than the Corinthians who put it. But he said, I'm not going to be a sort of living on in some substitute in the yet future. You know, I, I read of some men who say that they are going to contribute that little bit to this world and its advance, and they'll die and that's the end of them. But in the ages to come, some time down the ages, some of their descendants are going to enter in and that's going to be immortality for them. Well, that's a poor immortality, isn't it? I think the immortality that God gives is a literal, real, personal identity. And so he says, Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another. Looks as though he's, he's emphasizing, I know it's me this time. And then adds, though my reins be consumed within me. And the alternative rendering is this, that for this, within me, my reins are consumed with earnest desire for that day. Job, Job, you know what's happening, don't you? You are now wanting earnestly the very thing you said God wanted. He said in chapter 7, he would have a desire for my restoration. And he said, would you believe it? I'll come out into the light and I say, I'm desiring the very thing. And when a man marches with God like that, he's got something to print in a book and engrave in stone. Well now I want to turn to chapter 23 because he not only said, I know, but he got another emphatic statement instead of all the floundering and all the guessing that had been going on around him. I'll read again the words of verse 8 onwards. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, and I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. Well, that's a very poetic and wonderful way of saying I'm up against a brick wall. We don't put it so like that. We put it more tersely today. I'm in a fog. I don't know which way to turn. And of course you know full well that's the experience of practically every child of God. Not only every child of God, but those who do not know God as well. I don't know which way to turn. But there's always one way open that is open to the believer. He may not look north, south, east or west, but he can look up. He can look up. And that's what Job did. He said, I don't know which way to go. I'm in a perfect fog and a muddle, but he isn't. I've got to that. He's got a purpose, even though I don't know it. But he knoweth the way that I take. Shall I repeat what I said earlier? 
If you know anybody who from their heart can say these two expressions, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he knoweth the way that I take, that man's going straight for glory. He may want it explained a bit more and added to, given the more doctrinal terms, but he's got the heart of it, this double knowledge. He knoweth the way that I take, and he's got to this, that this is a test. You see, the thing that was baffling Job is that these three friends of his, they said, you know, Job, you must have done something wrong that we're discovering is coming on the surface, otherwise God would never treat you like that. And the more they said that, the more he held on to his integrity. But he said, I see now. I see the purpose. He said, when he had tried me, and this word means to test the metal. It's the word we get in the New Testament. Peter says, the trial of your faith, which is much more precious than gold perishing, though it be tried in the fire. You see, the trying of faith in the fire like gold. So he says, when he has tried me, oh, what a light it throws upon our experiences, and what a relief it is to know that we're not the sport of fate or a God who doesn't care. But we are in the hands of a God who is getting rid of the dross so that at last, in his mercy, we may shine like the stars in the firmament. There's a purpose in it. And the moment the purpose is reached, the scorching fire ceases. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In your mind, will you have the picture of the simple process in the ancient East? An earthenware pot a charcoal fire, a crude pair of bellows, and a man sitting cross-legged. That's all the apparatus. Well, then he puts the metal into the, into the pot, and he begins to blow with the bellows. And as he does so, so the scum rises to the top, and he takes it off. Then he puts the bellows again, and the scum rises to the top, and he takes it off. And on one occasion, he put the bellows on and there was no more scum. And the moment that's reached, no more fire. God's not going to keep on testing you when it's not necessary, friend. If you're still passing through the fire, there's a little bit more scum yet, friend. And when you look back, as you will do one day, you say, I'm glad he didn't leave off because I was crying out. But he said, when you tried me, I shall come forth as gold come through the test. And then the little bit that seems to be so uh, worthwhile mentioning is that instead of having all sorts of marvellous apparatus as they would have in a gold refinery today to tell you whether the gold was refined or not, chemical and other tests, he had a very everyday one. Sitting there looking at that liquid metal he knew it was refined when he could see the reflection of his own faith. Now, if you want that explained in New Testament terms, I pity you. But that's the truth. That the moment God can see the reflection of his own image, the fire's done its work, the temptation's all over, and then we're ready to be presented without spot in his presence. Now, all this is embedded in the book of Job, and we have to look at it from our point of view, knowing the gospel, 
and seeing a little more in it than perhaps Job himself realised and certainly many of his friends wouldn't have followed. But there it remains for all time. And it's one of those passages that have caught the attention and I suppose have been immortalised by the music of Handel so that to the very ends of the earth where the English language is spoken, nearly everybody has heard at least once those wondrous words. I won't try to sing them, but you've got them in your mind and in your heart, haven't you? I know that my Redeemer liveth. He knoweth the way that I take. We come back to John, the ninth chapter. They were very muddled and mixed with regard to why this man could be born blind. And he didn't know. He didn't know the character of the one who'd healed him. He, at last he turned round and he said, but one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. It wouldn't be a good, it wouldn't be a bad thing if sometimes we sat down with a book and made a little list of the things which the child of God can say without presumption, I know. But we ought to get beyond the idea of saying, oh, I just believe it, because if God is true, what we believe, we know. But here we must stay. Here we have the kinsman redeemer. God willing, next time we meet together, we shall make another step, and another one will come into the story who has not been mentioned yet. And he will add the word, a ransom. For the kinsman redeemer would be no redeemer for us, unless he laid down his life that we may live. But that, of course, is another wonderful and blessed story.